This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. The time now is 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the Independent News Hour coming up. Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, President Biden marks a solemn pandemic milestone. New shipments of the COVID vaccine are arriving in New York City after delays caused by last week's extreme weather. Legislation to speed up the parole of older prisoners in New York moves one step closer to reality. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. President Joe Biden marked a solemn milestone Monday night as the U.S. death toll in the COVID-19 pandemic passed the 500,000 mark. Standing just outside the White House, he addressed the losses people have endured, something his predecessor refused to do. The people we lost were extraordinary. They spanned generations, born in America, immigrated to America. But just like that, so many of them took their final breath alone in America. As a nation, we can't accept such a cruel fate. While we've been fighting this pandemic for so long, we have to resist becoming numb to the sorrow. The number of new COVID infections nationwide has declined in the past month from over 200,000 per day to about 60,000 per day. Here in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio says new supplies of the COVID vaccine are arriving after shipments were delayed last week due to extreme weather across much of the country. This is him speaking yesterday. We're ready. We could be doing half a million vaccinations a week right this minute. And we literally got down to a point we had fewer than a thousand first doses available. We're getting now finally the supply that we expected last week is arriving today. That means we've basically lost a full week in our vaccination efforts, but it will not stop us. It will not stop us from reaching our goal of 5 million New Yorkers vaccinated by June because we still have the ability and the capacity to do it. And the Johnson Johnson vaccine is coming, which is one dose only. That's tremendously helpful. So we're still able to reach our goal, but we lost a whole week because of the storm, what it did to supply around the country. Meanwhile, negotiations continue in Congress on the $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package. Democrats hope to move it by mid-March. Earlier today, conservative West Virginia Senate Democrat Joe Manchin announced he would support increasing the national minimum wage to $11 per hour as a part of the relief package. Manchin's support would provide a crucial 51st vote in the Senate for increasing the minimum wage. However, progressives in Congress, led by Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are still calling for the minimum wage to be raised to $15 per hour. Progressives are also calling on President Biden to publicly express his support for 6,000 Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are currently voting on whether to form a union. Biden so far has refused to do so. On Saturday, protests in support of the Amazon workers were held in 25 states across the country. Here in New York, demonstrators rallied outside the Whole Foods store at Union Square in lower Manhattan. The grocery store is also owned by Amazon. Also here in New York, legislation that would make it much easier for older prisoners to win parole moved one step closer to being enacted yesterday when the state Senate Corrections Committee approved the legislation. Among those supporting it were Senators Julia Salazar and Zellner Miley from Brooklyn and Gustavo Rivera from the Bronx. There are currently about 9,000 incarcerated people in New York state prisons over the age of 50. Activists are also stepping up pressure across the state on legislators to back the Invest in Our New York Act, which would raise $50 billion in taxes from the wealthiest New Yorkers to fully fund social services amid the pandemic. On Saturday, members of the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America and New York Communities for Change marched through the affluent Upper East Side demanding higher taxes on the rich. They converged on the home of State Senator Liz Kruger, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, who has so far refused to back higher taxes on the wealthy. Working classes, under attack. Working classes, under attack. What do we do? 
We'll talk more about the DSA's Tax the Rich campaign after the headlines with two members of the group who are active in its field campaign. And finally, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the legendary beatnik poet and publisher, died at his home in San Francisco earlier today at the age of 101. He was an unapologetic proponent of, quote, poetry as insurgent art and the founder of the City Lights Bookstore, a haven for rebellious artists since it opened its doors in 1953. We'll be back with more after this short break. Cause we get around Talking about my generation Things ain't do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before That was My Generation by The Who, and you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by my colleague, Olivia Reggio. Olivia, it's great to have you joining us as a co-host. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with all of you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. In our first segment today, we're going to look at the questions of which New Yorkers will foot the bill for the economic crisis and a looming state budget deficit of as much as $15 billion? Will it be New York's working class who pays the price through cuts in essential public services and social welfare programs? Or will it be the state's richest residents whose wealth has continued to grow throughout the pandemic? A broad statewide coalition of progressive groups is backing the Invest in Our New York Act, which would raise $50 billion in new taxes from the wealthy. The Democratic Socialists of America are one member group of that coalition. They have elected six of their own members to the state legislature in the past two years and are now running an aggressive field campaign in key legislative districts here in the city and upstate to build public support for tax hikes on the rich. This field work also has implications for future electoral campaigns they might wage in those very same districts. Joining us today to talk about all of this are Jack Gross and James Innes of New York City DSA. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, John. Um, I hope we can answer any questions and be as informative as we can to your audience today. Sure thing. So, uh, James, if you want to start um, by just uh, giving us a sense of what's at stake, what would $50 billion in new tax revenues from the rich mean for working-class New Yorkers? And also, what would it mean if those new tax revenues are not raised? Well, I'd like to start with the second question. What would happen if the if that revenue is not raised? Because that is why we were forced into action here, because we feel as if this next year after the budget comes out, the governor is going to cut substantially the budgets of the hospitals, the public schools. They're going to raise the MTA fares. And those things are just unacceptable to a struggling community here in New York City and the state as a whole people who have lost their jobs, people who need funding, people who need help can't get taxed more, can't, and not taxed by their wages tax, but taxed by um, everything costing more money for them, whether it's the MTA or it's their health insurance or if they're schooling and things like that. So those are what we're facing if we don't get the, and that is what is the most scary part to me, and that is the part that gets me into action, gets me out into the streets. Can you describe how you're going about building the support for taxing the rich? I cannot imagine. It's an easy process. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, so the, the field campaign that we're doing, the, the introduction had um, audio from a rally we did at Liz Kruger's house on the weekend. But um, the field campaign that James and I have been coordinating that started back in December um, with a big week of action, James and I, and I should say literally hundreds of other New York City DSA members who are not um, on this segment right now, um, that's been really made up of two things. We've been phone banking people across the city and across the state, um, you know, strangers, people who aren't involved with political organizations, having conversations with them about the budget crisis, about what they've been going through over the past year of the pandemic and about how um, extreme the failure is, the failure of leadership um, that's been taking place in Albany over the past year. So we've been doing a lot of phone calls, you know, thousands of phone calls um, across the city and the state to talk directly to people. And then we've also been doing um, door hanging shifts where we go and canvas a particular district, letting people know about what's going on, letting people know about these bills and how important it is that we tax the rich um, and that they need to take action as well and, and put pressure on their legislators. So we've talked to over 5,000 people across the state, and we've left door hangers on nearly 90,000 doors um, across New York City between December and now. And to echo that, different neighborhoods in New York City react differently. So the more working class neighborhoods, me, myself, I'm from the Bronx. I do a lot of door hanging in the Bronx. I don't get a lot of pushback on taxing the rich when I'm outside door hanging and speaking with right. people. <laughs> but Liz Kruger, as we just mentioned, her district is the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's a little, it's a lot more contentious trying to convince people to tax the rich in that part of Manhattan where, relative to where I live in the Bronx. So it's all relative to where we're at in the city and the state. Right. And, and uh, can you uh, say a little bit more about the conversations you've had and, and uh, how people are responding uh, to what you're proposing? And, and also, uh, what are some of the districts around the city that you all are focusing on in, in, um, I'll speak to the conversations first. Uh, uh -huh. So once you can break down to the constituents, hey, it's either you pay more for trains or we tax the rich, they, they always want to tax the rich. We have something in our, in our presentation where 90% of New York, of the New Yorkers in the state, not the city, support taxing the rich over cutting budgets to the social services. So it isn't as tough of a conversation once you actually have the conversation with people. I think that is part of the problem. People aren't engaging in this kind of thought. So a lot of this awareness that we're doing is it's working, so to speak, you know, it, it, and um, Jack, you can speak to the second part of the question if you want. Yeah, yeah. I just want to reiterate that last piece that James said. It really is, um, you know, these are, this is like some of the best phone banking I think anyone in DSA has ever done. Um, people really, really get this. There is a serious, serious majority behind this kind of politics in our state. The problem that we're trying to solve is breaching the gap between public opinion. You know, the millions and millions of people who know that rich people should be paying more taxes, who know that schools should be funded by taxes on the rich, um, and the complete failure of leadership that we see in Albany. So the conversations are amazing. Everyone is down. Everyone wants to tax the rich. Um, and in terms of the districts we've been targeting, we've done 18 districts um, across New York City um, in all four boroughs. Uh, oh, sorry. Four boroughs except for Staten Island, obviously. Um, and, uh, and, and also we've been working with um, cha DSA chapters across the state. So we've been doing phone banking with Nassau DSA on Long Island, Buffalo DSA, Lower Hudson Valley, Mid-Hudson Valley, Rochester, and Syracuse DSA have all been involved in this field campaign as well. So we're really trying to reach a lot of people everywhere. And it's not... DSA, not to cut you off, but we have Working Families parties are part of the coalition, Housing Justice for All, Make the Road. There are also other organizations aside from us and the yes. who are big parts. We're going to give them credit as well. I agree with I have no idea where you see. What's going on here? Um all right. Need to mute. Or... Okay, so um, we'll continue our, continue our interview here with uh, James Innes and Jack Gross from uh, New York uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Um, uh, j just to follow up, uh, w when y'all do the phone banking, uh, I understand you, you give people the opportunity to uh, patch in directly and leave messages on the uh, phone lines at the offices of their uh, state representatives. 
Can you describe that a little bit and, and uh, what kind of messages uh, you, you hear people leaving when they have that opportunity? Yeah, sure. I can speak to that. Um, yeah, so we've, the way the phone calls work is we have a brief conversation about taxing the rich. As I just said, everyone's usually like on board immediately and they want to figure out what they can do. So we give people a very easy thing to do and make a three-way call. They get put through to their legislator's office. And we've patched about 1,700 messages through um, to different target legislators since we started. And the messages really range a lot. I mean, as I said, like a lot of people get this intuitively. Um, There's a lot of anger out in, uh, you know, very different communities across the state. Um, But anger that's obviously all directed to the economic crisis and the complete failure of political leadership we've seen in the past year so. I've heard myself some extremely good messages from people who are very, very pissed off and don't understand why they're letting community out this year. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of anger and a lot of understanding about what needs to be done to kind of, to fix at least this, this part of the problem of the politics of New York state. That leads us to our next question. What is your sense about whether this can move the, to top Democratic leaders in the Senate and the Assembly, as well as Governor Cuomo. Cuomo. What's the buy-in for that? Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I think something really exciting happened today, which is um, that Brian Benjamin um, signed on to the bills. Um, He's got an important leadership position in Albany. So, you know, one by one, slowly, we are we are finding um, that, that people are, are coming on to support this package with a lot of pressure once they learn that there are really hundreds of constituents in their districts who, who you know, support these bills, understand that this is common sense and really represents the needs of lots of working and middle class people across the state. So I think right now, you know, this is a really crucial time because the leadership is discussing the budget um, over the next couple of weeks. And we really only have till the end of March before uh the final version comes out. So, you know, we're feeling optimistic. There's been a lot of support, a, a huge outpouring of volunteer energy around the campaign. And we are seeing that reflected in the legislators' responses. But, you know, it's also a moment of like intense tension, I think, for the campaign because we don't know really it's going to come down to, you know, this anti democratic process that takes place between Andrew Stewart Cousins, Carl Heasty, and Andrew Cuomo. And we hope um, that that we're going to have enough people behind us to to make sure that these bills are reflected in the budget. And just to echo that, we are getting legislators to sign up, to co-sign on the bills. Today, we just had a pretty big one. Senator Brian Benjamin, who's the chairman of the Committee on Revenue and Budget, signed on to five of the six bills today. So we are getting signed. And what district, who does he represent? Um, Harlem. Um, West Harlem, I want to say, the north part. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm a Manhattan state senator, but he's also, like I said, the chairman of the committee on revenue and budget in Albany. So he's not he, he's somebody that has a little bit of clout who, who people listen to. So and when we say we're targeting, that's what we're targeting. We're not trying to go for all 140 assembly members or whatever it is. We're trying to go for the ones who whose districts we feel in the districts. We feel like we can move them as we just got Brian Benjamin to sign on the five out of the six bills. That is a big plus for us. And that's something that we, it's momentum that we're going to keep building. We're going to contact more legislators and keep it moving that way. Right. And uh, we just have a a few more minutes here. I I, I do want to remind everybody that we are FCC regulated uh, uh, radio station. uh, And uh, I know we're feeling uh, passionate about the class struggle, but uh, no, no curse words, uh, uh, on live radio, please. Um, but, um, you know, just building off of uh, what you all accomplished with Brian Benjamin, um, can, you, can you talk about this kind of field work you're doing and how it must be unnerving for longtime incumbents who know the DSA's track record in primarying and defeating other longtime incumbents in recent years, including four entrenched uh, assembly members here in New York City uh, last June? Um just, I guess talk about the dynamics and the and kind of the strategy that you all are pursuing because nobody was doing this this kind of uh, kind of in your face uh, organizing before DSA came on the scene a few years ago. Um, I'll add to that. So another thing we're doing that we didn't speak about is actual con- constituent meetings. So we're getting people from the districts on Zoom meetings with their representatives, 
and I've actually met a few of them. So when it's talk when you talk about these relationships, I can tell you firsthand the it, they don't like us bringing constituents, not all of them. I shouldn't say everybody, because I've definitely had great constituent meetings as well with different assembly members and senators, but some of them don't like it at all. They're, they're a little dismissive. They're a little rude sometimes. I've personally had that happen to me this week. You take it in stride. As for us, we know they see us as the enemy, us as in DSA and the coalition. So we don't, we don't, we're not taking offense to any of that. We know that that's a sign of us doing our jobs. That's a sign of where it's working when they're pushing back on us and when they're, they're, the meetings are contentious. That means it's working, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Jack, you can speak to more if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're not like, we don't, DSA um, doesn't have any plans right now to primary or attempt to primary any of the people who we're pushing on this legislation for. So I think the way that we're understanding this is like, the way to to build power in these districts where there are influential politicians is to talk to people in their districts. And yeah, as James alluded to, some people don't really like it when you talk to people in their districts um, about the politics that are happening in this state, about how the budget even works. Very complicated, confusing process. But once people learn about it, they want to know more and want to, you know, have a democratic stake in these decisions that are being made. So I think the way that we see it is like, our goal as a socialist organization is to talk to as many people as possible about our politics all the time. And this is a particularly important campaign to be able to do that with because 90% of people agree that we should be taxing the rich instead of cutting um, funding to social services. And, uh, and those people need to know that they actually can do something to make that happen. So that's kind of how we're looking at it. Okay. Well, if I was an incumbent in one of those districts, I'd hear your footsteps coming and, uh, and give that some thought, but uh, we have to go here in a sec. And um, so uh, James Innes and, and Jack Gross, it's, it's been great having you join us on WBAI. And before we leave, uh, can you tell listeners uh, who want to get involved uh, how they can uh, contact you guys? Yes. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, we are trying to do an enormous field push over the next two weeks. So if anybody is listening to this and is even slightly interested in getting on a phone bank we're walking some doors. It's all COVID safe outside. Um, you can go to www.taxtherichnys.com slash volunteer. Taxtherichnys.com slash volunteer. And there's uh, information there about how, how you can sign up for door hanging shifts and phone banking shifts over the next couple of weeks. And uh, we really, really need your help. So anyone who's listening who wants to join up, please go to taxtherichnys.com slash volunteer. And, uh, and get involved in this fight. Right. And because and the budget battle in Albany culminates uh, in March, at, by the end of March. So we're, we're heading into crunch time here. Uh, yes, definitely crunch time. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But again, Jack Gross and James Innes from uh, New York City DSA, thank you so much for joining us this evening and filling us in on, on what you all are doing to uh, build support for bold new taxes on the rich here in New York. Thank you so much, John and Olivia. You bet. And when we come back, we will look at a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood here in the city that's on the verge of losing a full-service grocery store that many local residents depend on.
That was Equal Rights by Peter Tosh. I'm Olivia Riggio with the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. And I'm joined tonight by John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. And Olivia, before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling the following phone number. 516-620-3602 or by going straight to give number two wbai.org again that number is 516-620-3602 we can only do community radio with the support of our community Um, you can also go again to our website give number two wbai.org you can make a one-time donation or better yet sign up as a wbai buddy for as little as ten dollars per month and help keep shows like this on the air. And there's all sorts of great benefits as well to being a WBAI buddy that you can find out about when you go to WBAI.org. And uh, we'll be sharing the phone number again later in the show, but we really, really need your support for this station to help keep WBAI on the air, help keep shows like this on the air and all the other great shows that air throughout the week. The Associated Supermarket in Crown Heights is a neighborhood staple serving much of the neighborhood's largely Caribbean-American population with quality, affordable food and hard-to-find Caribbean items. Its parking lot is an added convenience for elderly customers, and it also has taxis that can help drive customers home. But it is at risk of becoming a high-rise luxury apartment building. The supermarket, located at 975 Nostrand Avenue in New York's 35th District, has been evicted and has been given 90 days to vacate. Community members are stepping in to protect it. Vivia Morgan, a licensed real estate agency board member and candidate for New York City Council for the nearby 40th District, frequents the restaurant. When she, um, the supermarket, when she heard of the news of its eviction, she began a change.org petition to protect the associated supermarket. Morgan sent her petition into the movement for, to protect the people, which fights against gentrification in, flat, in the Flatbush Avenue and Lefferts Garden area. The group is controversial. Depending on who you ask, it's either essential in speaking truth to power or creating division with its often abrasive organizing methods. But still, it bolster, bolstered the campaign, sent out flyers, and even held a rally in late January in support of the market. The petition now has more than 5,000 signatures. Midwood Investment and Development, the real estate company in charge of the proposed new building, is arguing the redevelopment would create new housing and retail spaces that would benefit the community. But community members who rely on the supermarket say the closing of the store would cause a food desert in the area, especially for elderly residents who can't really leave the area to shop. It's also It'll also leave the store's employees unemployed. Here to talk with us about the fight to save the associated supermarket is Vivia Morgan. Thank you for joining us tonight. Evelyn, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. So first, um, can you explain the importance of the associated supermarket in the Crown Heights community? Why is it so important to fight for it? Yes, this supermarket been in the community for over 50 years and it's the only supermarket for about a half a mile in the area um and is known to thousands of residents that best place to get fresh quality grocery at a great price and also everyone loves the fact that they have a parking lot so if we have a big family we don't have to worry about um, not finding a place to park. You know, sometimes I I just want to run into the grocery store and run out. So we have the parking lot. And not only that, this supermarket help um, block association. It also even helped the community board doing, doing Thanksgiving to give out turkeys and essential grocery you know what I mean so we really need and the seniors the seniors really are up in a roar right now because this is the only place that they have they have to either take a bus to get to an or a cab and sometimes you know you living on a, on a fixed income you do not have the money to go and it employs dozens of local residents as well so we're gonna we're fighting for jobs 
We're fighting for the seniors. We're fighting for low price, price, great, good, fresh produce. Right. That's and, yes. And and how how could the COVID pandemic make closing this this supermarket now at this time even more detrimental? Well. As we know, I, I focus on seniors because I've been speaking to a lot of seniors. And most of the time they come during COVID right now, they re- they're really not coming out. So they come out maybe twice a week to get groceries. And this is where they go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the shopping to get large quantity of food to last them for a few days and it's good price. So it's going to affect the um the seniors not just the seniors but i i try to focus on them because we all know that they're on a fixed income and there's they have we are trying to avoid them taking long walks you know what i mean and now the real estate company that is in charge of what would be the new building is saying that this new development would bring affordable housing and other businesses to the area um, what is your response, and is this a common claim that gentrifiers make? It is, and if if they could give us an ironclad guarantee, uh, then we don't want to hear it because, as we know, this is unrealistic to assume that any new business that come in the area, you know, are really going to help the community. Um, the residents are moving out right now and the landlords use use a lot of words as affordable so that they can um get 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 the the permits you know so they give us words oh we're going to have a certain amount of affordable housing in real in reality we know that if a if a family that's making 15,000 or less because we know that there's a lot of families in our community that's only making 15,000 some of them are not even making that so right. how what when they say affordable housing what exactly does affordable mean it to me to a person that's making 15,000 they're in the uh it, it 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 doesn't add up because to the big developers that have millions of millions of dollars, they can't fathom a person making fifteen thousand dollars for the year. They go to the to the store and spend fifteen thousand in one shot. You understand? So <laughs> right. yeah. Um, so that's not that's not um Re- realistic to to uh, a single mother that's working at McDonald's. What does yeah. affordable mean? Right. That, it's, it's, certainly, it seems like the developers have uh, you know other clients uh, in mind. And, and uh, talking about uh, full service grocery stores like this one and, and uh, how uh, they're trying to turn it into a luxury high rise. Uh, this is something that's uh, you know happened. Uh, before in other neighborhoods here in New York in 2018, it happened to a, a path mark on 125th in Lexington, creating a food desert right in the middle of Harlem. It also happened in 2014 to a, another path mark that was closed down and, and sold off on the Lower East Side by the Manhattan Bridge, where there now stands an 80-story uh, luxury super tower for the super rich. And we often talk about gentrification as the eviction notice on the door of someone's home, but uh, how is it just as dangerous when it comes to businesses uh, like grocery stores? Exactly. Um, it's very, very dangerous. Um, once a store or stores are evicted, we rarely see another, uh, another store or space allotted for the future stores. Right. Um, many times, when they evict um these these stores to to build these luxury high rise based on zoning opportunities right because another thing is we have to look at the community board we have to look at the community board and and 
hold the community boards accountable for not informing the community. If you're the community board, there's no reason why you cannot do a mask mailing paper mailing. We have to go back to the whole school because as we know, a lot of the seniors, they're not computer savvy, right? So how are they getting the information? If we don't tell them, they're not going to know, you know? So what we have to do, we have to hold the the community boards accountable for informing our community about the the position of based on zoning mm-hmm. and now we have to wrap up this segment um but where is your change.org your your petition is on change.org correct yes it is it's change.org and um just just look for save associated supermarket. Got it. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Vivia. Up next, we'll be talking to Erin McNeil of the National Organization on Media um, called Media Literacy Now about a case in Rhode Island where students are standing up for better civics education. This Way by Thelma Houston. I'm John Charlton with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, joined by my co-host, Olivia Riggio. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, Once again, I want to encourage listeners, uh, please give to the station if you can at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Help keep community radio alive and thriving here in New York City. Help keep this show and so many other great shows on WBAI uh, beaming across the New York City area and on up, upstate and into New Jersey and Long Island. Your listener support makes all of that possible. Again, 516-620-3602. And now we turn to Rhode Island, where students are taking a stand and arguing that media literacy and other civics education is essential in facilitating citizens full participation in democracy and and they want to make it a constitutional right in 2018 a group of students and parents on their behalf filed a class action lawsuit cook versus raimondo against state officials namely governor gina raimondo the suit accuses the state of not providing children with sufficient education to prepare them to participate in democracy and therefore violating the 14th amendment's equal protection clause in october 2020 rhode island district court judge william smith reluctantly dismissed the case and now last month the plaintiffs appealed the case National Media Literacy Organization, Media Literacy Now, the National Association for Media Education, and the Media Education Lab filed an Amici Curie or Friends of the Court brief alongside it, arguing why media literacy education is crucial and why a lack of it leads to the destruction of democracy. This case is not the first time Rhode Island has been called to implement media literacy education. In 2017, a group of advocates pushed to pass it. 
um, similar legislation that required officials to prioritize media literacy education. Media literacy now supported the cause as well, but officials have still failed to meet the demands. So here to talk with us about the Cook versus Mundo case and the implications of the case that it may have on state and media literacy education across the country is Erin McNeil, the founder and president of Media Literacy Now. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hi, Olivia. Great to be here. So first, um, can you describe Media Literacy Now's mission and how supporting this case aligns with your organization's goals? Sure. Um, We're leading a grassroots movement to um, change the education system. So we want a public education system that ensures that all students are getting these essential uh, 21st century, essentially literacy skills that they need for, um, for citizenship. Also for other things like health and well-being and even uh, parenting and economic participation. And can you give us a, a working definition of media literacy? I mean, obviously, uh, in the past year, we've seen the rise of uh, conspiracy theories uh, kind of running yeah. wild on the Internet and other places. But it seems like uh, learning to tell the difference between, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and and uh, fact-based reality is important, but um, are there other uh, levels of media literacy? Um, because often our establishment media uh, fails us as well. I certainly remember when all the media was uh, trumpeting going to war in Iraq or telling us how everything was great on Wall Street or they've obfuscated on climate change for, for decades. So w- what do we mean here by media literacy and what would it look like? Well, we start by um, thinking about what is media. So uh, media is really any place where you're getting information. Um, so it is the news media, but it's also video games and advertising and uh, websites, uh, etc. So we say that media literacy is about decoding the messages that you're getting from all of these sources. And and not just the message, but also the system behind those messages. So how did this message show up on my feed just now? Why is it there? You know, why am I receiving this message? Not just what does it mean? So um, decode the message and then assess the shaping effects of those messages. How are they influencing us uh, as individuals and as a society, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes? Uh, And finally, media literacy means that you learn to create so that you can tell your own story, both, uh, effectively and responsibly. And so this case discusses the importance of media literacy being an essential component of education. So what make the case for it being as essential a component in basic education as math or reading might be? Right. Well, uh, exactly. It's it's really literacy. So it's critical thinking around the, the messages that you're getting. So it's literacy for the 21st century when the messages that we're getting are not just, uh, we're not just reading and writing. Uh, we're not even just getting them from the radio. We're getting them from so many other places. And, and uh, there's just been such an explosion of communications technology that everybody has access to and can, can use to send out their own messages and receive messages. Children have access to all of these tools and people have access to them. So, uh, so this is literacy in the 21st century. So if you say uh, we teach literacy and math in school, but we can't afford to teach media literacy, that's like saying you can't afford to teach some one of the very basic, uh, fundamental and essential skills that, that everybody needs today. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And, um, and, and like Judge Smith said, the students deserve sufficient education in his um decision, he actually sort of sided with them, but said that he couldn't argue for it as a constitutional right. Make the case for it being a constitutional right. Well, the case that what this case is uh, saying is that uh, to participate in in being a citizen in a democracy, you need to be well informed. And so there's a there's a minimum amount of education that everybody needs to participate, to be well informed, to know where to get the information that they need to make decisions on uh, 
as as a member of of this society. So um, the case is saying that uh, this has already been established in the past that that students need a, a minimum amount of education. And today, clearly, to get that minimum amount of education, to know, uh, to be able to discern good bad, good information, bad information, what's disinformation, what is the um, you know what is what is the, the the news bias? Where do we where do we um, find the, the right information? Clearly, that's that's absolutely essential today for for citizenship. And the case says that that's already been established in um, in in the past as far as being a constitutional right. And, and um, we we have a couple more minutes for this segment. What what is the state of media literacy or lack thereof? around the country, and how have events like the Capitol insurrection of January 6th and the prominence of other conspiracy theories like the COVID denial in the past year bolstered the students' cause? Well, we're starting to see the results of not updating and modernizing our education system. And at the same time, we're seeing very sophisticated, highly um, persuasive technologies and sophisticated campaigns and disinformation uh, targeting individuals and groups of people in our country to, to divide, to misinform, to introduce uh, a lot of questions about uh, what's the truth and what are facts. And those are coming from, um, from so many different directions. They're coming from foreign actors. They're coming from, from domestic uh, sources. So um it's just the pace, the pace of the the technology has has been um, so rapid that so many people have access now that um, yeah the the gate you know the gatekeepers are gone and at one time places like Go yours ahead. the radio station there were there were uh, or newspapers there were sort of these places where you knew that there were certain levels of editing and and um, credibility in in the news that you were getting. Right now, anybody can put out any, you know, any sort of message. And a lot of people don't realize that. They don't really understand how the system works, how um, anybody could make up a conspiracy theory and, and put it in the right channels and pick up an audience. Yeah. And we've seen that. And um, yeah. we're going to have to leave this segment there tonight. But um, where can people go to learn more information yeah, absolutely. Go to our website, medialiteracynow.org, and learn more about what is media literacy. Start there. Um, get on our mailing list. Join us on social media. Uh, you can you can donate as well as our uh, on our website. But um, but go there and and find out what 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 we're doing and how it really affects everybody's life. It affects your life. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. When we come back, we'll talk about the life and art of beatnik poet Lawrence Farlinghetti, who died earlier today with Reverend Billy Talon, who knew him when they both lived in San Francisco in the 1980s. That was Don't Leave Me This Way by Thelma Houston. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99FM here in New York and streaming on WBAI.org. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief, also here with the Indies Olivia Riggio. Earlier today, Lawrence Fairlinghetti, the legendary beatnik poet and publisher, died at his home in San Francisco at the age of 101 years old. He was an unapologetic proponent of quote, poetry as insurgent art and the founder of the City Lights Bookstore, a haven for rebellious artists since it opened its doors in 1953. Speaking of rebellious artists, 
Uh, joining us in, in the final moments of tonight's show to talk about Lawrence Ferlinghetti is Reverend Billy Talon of the Church of Stop Shopping here in New York, a, a performance art and a gospel choir troupe that's uh, always fanning the flames of radical activism here in New York and uh, across the country and around the world. Uh, Reverend Billy, welcome to the show. Hallelujah, John. Always great to have you with us. Uh, so um, first of all, can you describe uh, how you knew Lawrence and, and also how his art inspired you? Well, when I, I was growing up in uh, little little towns in uh, Minnesota, you know, and South Dakota, I um, I like lots of lots of kids back then. I I my ticket out of town was the Beatniks. I, I was in the Beatniks and um, the Jazz Revolution of the fifties and sixties. And so I'm of a certain age. There you go. But I I was able to um, escape a very conservative uh, family situation and and just just you know these are Republican communities back in there. A lot of my a lot of people I haven't seen in decades are uh, Trumpers. And um, the way to get out for me was to get to Madison, Wisconsin. That was the uh, the university was in flames then in the 60s and early 70s. And so I, uh, but the whole time I had, I was reading the beats the entire time, you know, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, just always Jack Kerouac. I I was always reading the beats and they, they kind of came into the rock music at at the beginning of the, this, the, uh, the sixties peace movement. And uh, it was all a, uh, in, in, in an important way to get out. And I ended up in San Francisco, um, you know, sitting in cafes, and there was Lawrence there in North Beach. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe uh, talk about uh, your encounters with uh, Lawrence. Uh, I, I know you were one of many young artists that uh, he crossed paths with. but Well, yes, he was a... Um, you know, uh, the revolution in an art form uh, or the, 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 the thing that turns culture upside down, boy, we, we just got it this, this last year with Black Lives Matter. Uh, it has to happen every once in a while, doesn't it? Especially in this, in this culture where things are calcifying because of the bombardment by corporations. Corporations, uh, the monetizing of all communications uh, as Aaron was just talking about, the uh, we we need these revolutions, and Lawrence had an eye for that. Um, he he started a uh, a community uh, bookstore in North Beach in the Italian section of San Francisco that became um, the epicenter of of folks coming in from all over the world, uh, and that that. With the, with the jazz movement in the in the late fifties and early sixties was 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 just key. It was the key. That was my favorite neighborhood in San Francisco when I lived there. And how do you hope his work will be remembered today um, in movements that are still happening today? Olivia, that's a good question. Um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was was a person who brought people around him who were uh, geniuses and more, more edge people than, than he was. His, his uh, most famous book is A Coney Island of the Mind, and uh, I would say, but he was a writer all his life. But he was a writer who you could read his poetry and you could understand it. <laughs> so mm. he, he was... a. We're indebted to him because of his of, of the way that he was not afraid of people who were dissembling culture, who were reassembling culture, and who had wild values and were experimenting. Um, so there would be you, you, your image of Lawrence Fernaldetti is he was the sober person in the room, <laughs> and all around him people were caterwauling and somersaulting and and yes. making new culture that went into 
that went into pop music, that went into design. Went into- yeah, we'll have to leave it there, Billy, but we can certainly imagine you uh, being one of those uh, caterwauling uh, free spirits uh, out there. <laughs> well, he published uh, my last book, City Lights Publishers. Uh, that was a dream of mine from, you know, my, well, my days see- as a kid in the, in the prairie states. All right. Well, we, we love Thank to you, see- Lawrence. You bet. We'd love to see dreams come true. Uh, but we'll have to uh, wrap it up here for tonight. I'm John Tarleton uh, with the uh, Independent News Hour. Thanks again to uh, co-host uh, Olivia Riggio uh, for uh, joining us tonight. And also thank you to Amba Gagarian, Kenneth Lopez, and uh, Rob Katz, all uh, helping uh, put this show together. One more time, that phone number, 516-620-3602, or give to WBAI.org. We'll be back uh, same time next week. Thank you. listeners and supporters tune in tuesday february 23rd from 7 to 9 p.m for the first report of 2021 from the wbai local station board this month you'll be introduced to the lsb officers and to the pmb directors they'll talk about their responsibilities recent developments throughout the network and ask you for your ideas on how to build a stronger wbai so mark that date on your calendar tuesday February 23rd, 7 to 9 p.m. The first report of 2021 from the WBAI Local Station Board. Only on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. of New York City shuts down in April, but then decommissioning starts. Indian Point's owner plans to transfer the license to Holtec. Some environmental groups and elected officials oppose this because of Holtec's long-standing disregard of health and safety. Holtec continues to be investigated for corruption and cutting corners. Ken, Sally, and Donna from Ecologic ask you. Comment by Friday, February 26th. For talking points and how to send your comments, go to www.clearwater.org. That's clearwater.org.
previous program was the Independent News Hour, and that is heard on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. here on WBI.